60 of the Pew Bible if you need it. If you haven't uh, been around Gray Road uh, for long, it will not take you long to discover how often it is that I make mistakes. Last week, I was meant to uh, bring before us uh, Jeff and Joy Craft that we might bring, welcome them into membership, and I did not. Uh, and so, before we begin, uh, they have gone through the membership process. They have met with some of our elders, and we are heartily recommending them to you for membership. Jeff and Joy were over here somewhere. There they are, right there. And, uh, and so, Gray Road members, if you rejoice with me in welcoming them into membership, will you please say amen? Amen. 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 Welcome, Jeff. Welcome, Joy. Now, uh, Chad has some assignments for you. Um, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 14. Last week in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul showed us what love is and what love is. Does and he begins chapter 14 with this, these words, pursue love, hunt it down like a dog with a rabbit. Don't let it get away. Hang on to it. Express it in how you use your spiritual gifts. Let's read these 25 verses. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 25. This is what the Spirit of God says through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? 
I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is, for unbeliever, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and speak in tongue, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray together. O great God, we come to Your inerrant, infallible Word, and we want to hear it. We ask that the same Spirit who inspired these words would throw the light on them for us, would illuminate our minds so that we can see clearly what You say. We want to hear Your voice. And we want to hear it clearly. And so we ask you, through your word, that you would speak. For we, your servants, are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Now, before we dive in, there in verse 22, I did not miss a word. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. And what I said is, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers, that's because the word sign isn't there in the original, and that's actually important. So I just wanted to make that note before we begin. Back in um, 2008, Susan and I moved from Nashville, Tennessee uh, to Marion, Indiana, north of here in Grant County, Um, and we did it because a church that I had served there, I served as a youth pastor, ended up splitting Uh, Actually, all the trouble began, and then it split after we left. Uh, And for for through a series of events, I won't go into. We felt convinced that that I ought to actually resign my pastorate in order to go up there and encourage reconciliation through uh, what ended up being countless hard and heartbreaking conversations. Um, When I resigned my the pastorate in Nashville, I had no prospect for a job. In Marion. A friend of mine, though, got me an interview to be a chaplain for hospice care. 
And the woman who interviewed me for this job probably quickly learned that I was unlike any other candidate for the hospice chaplain that she had met. She asked me, for example, if when I come on, if I am serving a Roman Catholic patient, would I be willing to perform the, the last rites for that patient? And I said, no. And she looked at me quite surprised, and so I explained to her, why not? A little later on, she said, well, now, would you be willing to carry a portable communion kit in your trunk so that you can have communion with patients if they'd like that? I said, no. Again, she was surprised. Again, I explained why. At one point, she finally looked at me and said, well, here's what we really want out of a chaplain. We want a chaplain who will be spiritual but not religious. Can you do that? And I said, yes, I can. And she was relieved, but only momentarily, because then I said, but we have to agree on what it means to be spiritual and what it means to be religious. I am still not sure how I got that job, <laughs> but I am thankful that I am because my only other option was to sell prepaid funerals and cemetery plots, and I am the worst salesman that I know. So I was thankful to get that job. But it is important for us, isn't it, to understand what it means to be spiritual. It can seem a rather vague concept, but in simplest terms, if a person or activity is spiritual, then there is evidence of the Holy Spirit of God at work there. That is what it means for anything to be spiritual in the biblical sense of the word. As Christians, we live spiritual lives. Our lives are meant to be marked by the Holy Spirit, by things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and many other things. I mean, Paul doesn't even limit fruit of the Spirit to that. He says, things like these, these aren't forbidden in the law. So, this is what our lives are to be like, but also when we get, but as a church, our church is actually meant to be a spiritual family. Our relationship should be marked by the Holy Spirit. Our gathering should be marked by the Holy Spirit. Well, that begs the question then, what does that mean? What does it mean for a gathering like this to be spiritual? How will we know as we walk out today, how will we know that what we've done here is spiritual? Will we have certain feelings? Will something extraordinary happen within this time together? Does spiritual worship look chaotic? Does it look controlled? Is it only spontaneous? Does it happen if things are planned? Getting to the heart of what it means for gathering to be spiritual is an important issue in the city of Corinth in the first century. You see, some believe there that if you're really spiritual, if this gathering's really going to get spiritual, 
then what will happen is people will speak in tongues. That this is the height of spirituality, this spirit-empowered ability to speak in languages you don't naturally know. This, they say, is the mark of real spirituality, the greatest spirituality, in fact. But Paul says there's something greater. There's a greater gift from the Spirit, greater because of its outcome. And he's telling us in these verses that we ought to love the church with spiritual gifts that build up the church. Love the church with spiritual gifts that build up the church. First, I want you to see his priority. Paul's priority. Now, back in chapter 8, verse 1, uh, Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he connects those two concepts here again. In verse 1, he says, pursue love. And then the priority through the whole chapter, you heard it at least five times, is building up. It's in verse 3. It's in verse 4. It's in verse 5. It's in verse 12. It's in verse 17. Look at verse 12 in in particular. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You really want to see the, the Spirit at work in you, Corinth? Strive to build up the church. That's what the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit wants. That's what the Spirit will do. To build up here is a verb of uh, construction. It, you know, is used of houses and of temples. Literally, it means to put the roof on the place, to put the roof on a house so that it stands, so that it's strong, so that it's secure. And so Paul's saying that what happens when you gather from the songs that are sung to the prayers that are prayed to the sermons that are preached, it all has one aim, you see. Build up the church. Build up the church. Give spiritual strength. Give spiritual stability. In fact, this was Paul's aim. Right after he was brought to faith in Jesus in Acts chapter 9, the Bible tells us that he went preaching in Judea and in Galilee and in uh, 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 Judah. And what was the result? Well, chapter 9 verse 31 says, the church had peace and was being built up. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that pastors or teachers are to do their work for the building up of the body of Christ. That's chapter 4, verse 12. In verse 16, he says the whole church joins in. He says the church builds itself up in love. In our relationships with one another, we're not to speak uh, words that tear one another down, Ephesians 4.29, but rather such as is good for building up. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul encounters a church that is building one another up, and he says, build one another up just as you are doing. Keep it up. Keep building up the church. This is the priority. And it's particularly important for the Corinthians because what's happening in that church is not building up. It's tearing down. It's tearing apart. The church fellowship 
is being torn apart by these divisions. Everybody claiming, hey, I'm with Paul. Hey, I'm with Apollos. Hey, I'm with Cephas. Being torn apart because some of the Christians are taking other Christians to court and filing lawsuits against them. Being torn apart because there is this boasting about which spiritual gift that you have. It's being torn apart because they're tolerating sin, especially the sin of sexual immorality. It's being torn apart because they're using their Christian freedom in ways that are harmful to other people, actually hurting the faith of others. You see, friends, when churches get torn apart, whether it's ordinary conflict or whether it is a church split, at the heart of it, I guarantee there are wrong priorities. The priority in such situations has become me, myself, and I. That's what's happening in Corinth. It's what happens in so many churches today. But building up changes the pronouns. So that rather than first-person singular pronouns, it's first-person plural pronouns. It's no longer me, myself, and I. It's we, ourselves, and us. And my individual contribution to that we, ourselves, and us is to prioritize you, yourself, y'all. The priority is building up the church. I wonder, as you got ready this morning, and as you got into your car, and as you drove here, knowing that we would sing songs, and we would hear God's Word, and some of you would teach, and some of you would serve, and all of these things, and we would all interact with one another, I wonder if this priority was anywhere on our radar screen. That the reason I'm coming today is to be part of building up the church to be part of something that is not about me. Yes, we come together primarily to glorify God in our singing, in our preaching, in our relationships. But Paul says the priority on the horizontal level is to build up the church. And actually that glorifies God when we build up His church. Now, some weeks we may arrive quite dry, can't we? We can arrive spiritually dry. But I want to tell you a secret. It's counterintuitive. It is absolutely counterintuitive, and yet it is true. When I prioritize serving others, blessing others, building up others, I am refreshed by that. Proverbs 11 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. The priority is to build up the church. Now think about building something, a wall, for example. This is definitely outside of my wheelhouse, but building a wall, I'm pretty sure you don't just gather the two-by-fours and just pile them up. That this is not how this happens. At some point, there has to be some kind of nailing, right? Nailing must happen so that the thing holds together, stays in one place. Well, what is it that holds things in place? If our goal is to build up, what holds together all that happens? What are we after? What is the nail that will strengthen? What is the nail that will stabilize? What builds up the church? 
Well, it's not waves of emotion. It's not ecstasy. It's not enthusiasm. Now, tears of conviction and the joy of the Lord may result from being built up, actually. But we're built up as we grow in knowledge and understanding. Now, I never noticed this about this chapter before, this very week, but I sat down with all of the verses printed out on paper, and I just began to circle all of the language that had to do with the mind and with thinking and with understanding and with knowing. And in 21 out of the 25 verses, there is some kind of reference to this area of life. Let me just show you two places. Verse 6, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues… How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? What is it that will be beneficial? Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching. Verses 13 to 15, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. This is not about private prayer time. This is in the gathering of God's people. He says, what, what is it that is real spiritual prayer, spiritual praise? It includes the mind. The mind must be engaged. Worship that doesn't engage the mind doesn't build up. It isn't spiritual. Now, this is no call for a mere intellectualism at all, because all of us would know those times when our mind has been engaged by the Bible and our soul has been moved by it. And tears have flowed from it. Joy has exploded in response to it. But it all began where? As the truth of God engaged our minds. Worship that is mindless is spiritually useless. The priority when we gather... The priority when the Corinthians gather is to build up, which means engaging the mind. That is the priority. Well, secondly, what is the plan? If that's the priority, what is the plan? How is the church going to be built up? What are the tools that we use to hit that nail, so to speak? How is the faith strengthened and secured when we gather? And the short answer is through spiritual gifts. Verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, he will elevate one above the others, but these spiritual gifts are abilities given by God, empowered by the Spirit of God to build up his church. If you just flip backward in your Bible one page, you'll see that in chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. And then at the end of chapter 12, he says, actually, among all these gifts, what I really want you to desire 
is the higher gift. The higher gifts. Now, in the Corinthians' mind, there's no doubt what the higher gift is. The one that supersedes all the rest. The one that is the gift. The superior gift. It must be. You can see them reading this, right? They see, oh, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Yes, yes, yes. We must all aspire to do what I do so well. Speak in tongues. And Paul says, no. Now, to be clear, speaking in tongues holds a significant place in the storyline of the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 11, the whole notion of different languages is introduced, not as a blessing on mankind, but as a curse, as an act of judgment because of their pride. And so God confuses their language. So it's an act of judgment in Genesis 11. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes and speaking in tongues comes with it to say that what was a curse then is now a signal of God's blessing. Salvation has come. The Spirit has come. And through the book of Acts, this speaking in tongues shows up to say, that the same Spirit who filled the Jews at Pentecost also filled the Samaritans, also filled even the Gentiles. Now, as time goes on in the New Testament, even the mention of speaking in tongues goes away. This is a very early letter when it comes to when these things were written. As the book of Acts goes on, you don't see it. You don't find teaching on speaking in tongues in any other letter. It seems to fade from existence. Now, I'm not one who can say with great dogmatism that the Spirit of God would not give such a gift today, but I would say He would give it for the same reason and in the same way that He did then. Where there's no church, where there's no gospel, where there's no Scripture especially in that particular language, God, by the Holy Spirit, may choose to give that, but I will tell you that the clown shows that we see, the exaggerations that we see, are not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. And then what happens? We go forward. What will happen on the last day? People from every tongue will gather around the throne. And collectively... As it were, we will speak in tongues to say one thing. Salvation belongs to our God who is on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a beautiful storyline, isn't it? Speaking in tongues plays a very helpful, useful, good, God-ordained place in the unfolding of the Bible. So Paul, don't hear Paul saying, stop speaking in tongues. He is not saying that. He, because look at verse 5. I want you all to speak in tongues. Look at verse 19. Oh, 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
He's not saying stop doing it. He's saying stop prioritizing it. Stop elevating it. Stop making it the mark of spirituality in the church. Because speaking in tongues on its own doesn't accomplish that. Verses 7 to 11, listen to this. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound... Who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Now I want to try something. Can you do a little exercise with me? We're going to sing a hymn together. All right? You ready? Let me play the introduction. Ready? Go. <laughs> now, wait a second. Why didn't you start singing Amazing Grace? Because the notes aren't distinct. You can't possibly understand what's going on. It's interesting, just, just about, what, where are we? Two months ago, uh, I was in Guatemala with, with Susan and with our two youngest children, and my youngest son loves cheeseburgers, but he only loves them one way, plain, okay? He doesn't even like the seeds to be on the bun, all right? So we are there. Over the course of that week, we must have ordered 10 queso burguesas, cheeseburgers, and try as we might, nobody seemed to understand what we meant by plain. Even when I said, solamente pan, y carne, y queso, y pan, only three out of ten got it right. I don't even think it was about the words I was saying. It was like they don't even understand this. Pl Why would you eat anything without sauce on it? Why would you eat anything without vegetables on it? What was happening there? They were a foreigner to me, and I was a foreigner to them. Clarity of speech matters, doesn't it? And not just clarity of words, clarity of ideas. This is why if you ever speak in another country and you're speaking through a translator, don't, don't use idioms. You can't use idioms because they're so cultural specific that nobody will get... They can say the words, but they don't know what you're talking about. Another time that I was in Guatemala, I had this wonderful illustration about hitting a home run until I realized none of these Guatemalan pastors knew anything about baseball. And then all of a sudden, they're clueless. So then I'm trying to explain baseball like I would to my five-year-old son. If there's no distinct notes, nobody will know when to sing. Nobody will know when to go to war. And so the plan can't be, Paul says, the plan cannot be just for everyone to speak in tongues, for everyone to just go into and utilize this spiritual gift. Because it's incomprehensible on its own, apart from interpretation, to think of it as the highest gift 
actually reveals immaturity, not maturity. Look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. This quotation is from Isaiah 28. The priests and the prophets are basically taunting Isaiah because his words are basic and clear, and so they use this little this, this little taunting mechanism. It sounds like an elementary school uh, uh, playground. All it is is precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Da, 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 da. This is baby stuff, Isaiah. Give us the real stuff. Give us the deeper knowledge. And Isaiah says, well, if you won't listen to the clear words, then all that's left is judgment. An invading army will come, and they will speak in strange tongues, and not even then will you listen. In a similar way, tongues is a sign not to draw unbelievers in, you understand. Tongues is actually, on their own, is a sign of judgment against, because even if in the tongue they are speaking marvelous works of God, if you go somewhere, if you go up this afternoon to Daniel and Amy Rodas's church and you sit there and you listen to Daniel Rodas preach in Spanish, he can say everything right and it won't matter a hill of beans to you. If you're an unbeliever and you go in and there's all these languages going on and all this speaking in tongues, do you know what that is? It's useless. I can't understand it. I can't hear it. And if I can't hear it, I can't believe it. And if I can't believe it, I cannot be saved. So what is the tongues on its own? A sign of judgment. It's no sign of salvation for an unbeliever. Tongues are a gift of the Spirit, friends. They were used of great, to great benefit in God's purposes. But apart from interpretation, they don't build up the church. They're not, that's not the plan. So what is the plan? The plan is prophecy. We encountered this back in chapter 11. But let me remind you, prophecy is spontaneous revelation given to individuals to be spoken to the church. It's not predictions about the future. It is God's Word to a particular people at a particular place at a particular time with particular purpose. So like tongues... Prophecy is spontaneous. Like tongues, prophecy is revelation. Unlike tongues, prophecy is clear. It's understandable. It gives understanding, and so it builds up the church. So to the Corinthian surprise, prophecy is superior to speaking in tongues. Look at verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And then about himself in 18 and 19, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. <clears throat> Now, this kind of spontaneous revelation is not part of church life today. It was needed then because they didn't have the New Testament. 
With the completion of the New Testament, this kind of spontaneous revelation through prophecy is no longer needed. We have, God tells us, all that we need for life and for godliness. We don't need another word. We don't need a fresh word. This is, this is the freshest word you'll ever hear. This is it. It never, it never goes bad. It never spoils. It, never, it may be out of fashion in culture, but it's never out of relevance. And so God has, speak, has spoken. Now you may say, well, well, then what in the world does this have to do with us today? Because we're not speaking in tongues. We're not prophesying. Well, there is something that happens that is similar to prophesying. And that is actually the preaching of the Bible. In a very real sense, the whole Bible is prophecy. The whole Bible is written to particular people at particular times, and yet its truth is universal for all people at all times. So when the Bible is opened and explained, when its implications are laid out, what is happening? The prophecy that was first revealed then to them is freshly revealed now to us. Same words come freshly to us. So God speaks to His servant through His Word. And the servant takes the Word to particular people in a particular context. So that in this sense, preaching is a kind of prophesying. So as we think about our priority, our plans may include a number of things, Sunday school and growth groups and one-to-one and -one discipling, and these things are all wonderful. But dear friends, it starts here in the pulpit. The plan to build up the church begins with prophetic preaching, taking what God has said and bringing it to us. That is where the ministry of the church begins, preaching that unfolds God's Word clearly, faithfully, saying what God says to us here and now. So my question to you is, do you want to be a strong church? Do you want to be a healthy church? Do you want a faith that is firm and won't be blown all over the place by different winds of doctrine? Do you want help and hope when suffering beats you down, when grief overwhelms you, when sin seems to have the upper hand? Do we want to see Gray Road Baptist Church built up? Let me tell you one thing you can do every single week to do that. Pray for the man who will stand here, who will fill this spot for the one who answers this call and carries out this task. And I say to myself, as much as I say to my fellow pastors and elders in this room, and to all of you, all you men who would carry that baton in the generations to come, you boys, you boys who will grow up to be men and God will call some of you out to be pastors and elders in your church. Listen. Build up the church. Speak clearly. Speak plainly. Speak courageously what God says. You see, clever preaching can build up a church's size, maybe. But clear preaching can strengthen a church's soul. That's the plan. Speaking 
God's Word clearly, whether with a melody or without. And finally, the people. Who is it that benefits from this priority, this plan to elevate prophecy over even something like speaking in tongues? Well, there are two answers. The first is obvious, uh, and that is those inside the church. Who benefits those inside the church do? Look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. You, You see, building up isn't something for just the young believer. It's not just something for the weak believer. It's something for every believer. Each of us needs to hear God's words. Two weeks ago, uh, I listened as God spoke through our brother Kevin as he opened 1 Corinthians 12 to us, and I have thought about those five questions about what makes a gift truly spiritual. As he was preaching and I was listening God was building me up. Very often, as I preach myself to you, the Lord uses my preaching probably in my life, maybe far more than He does in yours. But I am built up as I preach. So we need to prioritize God's Word being preached. I'll leave it with that, those ends, because we've talked about the church quite a bit, but I want to get to this second group, which is those outside the church. Listen to verses 23 to 25. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed... And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I mean, that's what we want, don't we? Don't we all want, whether you're an outsider or not, don't we all want to walk out thinking, God was really there. God was really there. Well, Paul says speaking in tongues shuts the outsider out. Prophecy invites him in. I saw a video recently of a, uh, a, a preacher who loves and extols uh, speaking in tongues, and it was all, the service was all fired up, and there was a man standing in front of him, and he holds out the microphone into the man's face, and he commanded him, speak the language of the Spirit. And after a moment of silence, the man thrust up his hands and began babbling on in some way that I did not comprehend. It was unintelligible speech. And Paul's saying if an outsider was there, he'd walk out shaking his hands, wondering what is wrong. But I want you to imagine the same situation. Here's the pastor holding a microphone into the face of a man and says, speak the language of the Spirit. And the man thrusts up his hands and says, whatever you've done, Jesus can forgive you. Wherever you're lost, Jesus can find you. He died and rose again, and if you turn to Him, He'll never turn from you. Paul says that's the kind of language where they don't go away shaking their head. They go away bowing their head. 
God was really there. You ever wondered? You ever wondered how it is that the preacher knows what you've been thinking? Like he's been reading your email during the week? It was just the clear words of God, empowered by the Spirit, coming to you in that moment. I mean, if you are an outsider, those words are for you. Any member here would love to talk to you, wherever it is you think you're hiding. Jesus can find you. In the end, if you want the outsider to look at you, show off your gifts. Speak in tongues. If you want the outsider to look at God, prophesy. Speak clearly. That is our plan. How do we know if our gathering is spiritual? When this happens. By engaging the mind so that the church is built up. By sticking to the priority and sticking to the plan and begging for God's help so that we do both. Then our gatherings will be spiritual, marked by the Spirit. The results will vary from one heart to the next and from one week to the next. But this is truly spiritual ministry. You see, this priority of building isn't just our priority. When we carry the priority of building up the church, we share in the priority of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So long as Jesus' priority is our priority. And so long as the Spirit of Jesus empowers the plan, we cannot fail because He will not fail. Pursue love and build up the church. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank You for Your great and glorious Word, for its clarity, for its power, and we pray You would take these words, apply them to our hearts, help us to prioritize what You prioritize, help us to prioritize we and not me us and not I. Help me, O oh Lord, to prioritize others. Lord, help us to stick to the plan of speaking Your words clearly, believing that Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword and it will pierce through and it will accomplish what You send it out to do. Help us to send out Your words and not our own in conversation, as we disciple others, in our evangelism, and in the gathering of Your people. And Lord, we pray that we who are inside the church will be built up and strengthened like the one who built his house on a rock. And when the winds come and the storms blow, 
because we have heard your words and obey them. We'll stand. And we pray that those outside the church will hear what is sing, sung, will hear what is prayed, will hear what is preached, and will join us in saying God was really there. Make it so, Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.